Genesis chapter 20. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you. Before all who are with you, you are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his slave girls, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham, Sarah's, or wife Sarah. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our God, we ask simply that you would use your word to speak to us. And we ask that you would apply it to our lives and that your word would accomplish what it is intended to do. And we pray, Father, that you would give us grace to hear and eyes to see. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Believe it or not, um, there are some places in the world that most people like to avoid. Uh, very rarely will you meet someone who wants to explore all of Antarctica, for example, or to wander around the Mojave Desert, or to see the bottom of the ocean. You know, of course, there are some who occasionally break that mold uh, and want to see those places. There are some odd ducks out there. I hope none of you are one of them. Uh, but by and large, I think it's safe to say that most of the populace 
uh, avoids these kinds of places. They stay away from them. They have very little desire or interest to encounter those places up close. Courtrooms are one of those places. Uh, uh, Most people try to avoid courtrooms at all costs. Again, I realize there are those uh, occasional odd ones who like a good legal dispute, but I can't really recall ever hearing someone celebrating because they were pulled for jury duty, like, yay, uh, I can't wait to go uh, uh, to this hearing, party at my house at seven. You know, No one does that when they get jury duty in the mail. No one wants to be pulled for jury duty. No one likes being stuck in a court Although, even though it might be for good reasons, there aren't a whole lot of us who really enjoy the whole process. But worse than sitting in court as a juror is sitting in court as the accused. I mean, absolutely no one desires or envies the position of those sitting in that seat of judgment. I mean, you know, who wants to be sitting in the place of O.J. Simpson? or Phil Spector, or anyone seated in that judgment seat about to have their whole future decided for them. Well, this morning, beloved, we come to a courtroom scene in Scripture. That is the overarching picture here in this chapter. It is one of courtrooms and lawsuits and guilt. Someone stands guilty in this text. And we come to a passage of Scripture where we'll see one man brought forward as the accused before God and another brought forward as the accused before a king. And yet, despite this imagery here, we also come to a passage of Scripture that is often minimized and overlooked. Many uh, interpreters, many modern critics of Scripture see Genesis 20 as nothing more than a repeat of chapter 12 where Abraham went down to Egypt because of a famine and told a a half-truth or a lie in order to survive. And some scholars argue that this text is so similar to chapter 12 that it's probably the same account or a fiction altogether, basically saying it's the same old story, just a different day. Again, Abraham's half-truth causes trouble for an unsuspecting ruler Revealing to us how God still works despite man's sinful failures. The point here is the same as before. Abraham's truth, half-truth, is at the center. And God needs to deal with these failures of men. However, the question is, is that really the same event again? Is this really the same thing all over again? Is it really the same old story? Or is there something else going on here? Genesis 20 Does it have the same exact focus as chapter 12? And if not, what then is the focus of this particular text? And surely there are similarities between this and Genesis 12. We all agree on that. And yet there's also enough differences that we have to say, what is God doing here in this place, in this time? Our text opens up. And we find ourselves very quickly entering into God's courtroom. God's courtroom. As you come into Genesis 20, we find Abraham. He's on the move again. Abraham has lived at the Oaks of Mamre for some time now. At least for 20 years, he's been in this one particular place, worshiping God under the Oaks of Mamre. But now we find him picking up and going. We're not really told why. The text is silent on this point. It could be 
that it was too much for him to see the ruins of Sodom before him every day. It could be that he was persecuted for his faith in a God who judges sin or even embarrassment about Lot and his actions if news ever came to him about what his nephew had done. But the text doesn't tell us, and the bottom line is, for one reason or another, we find Abraham moving again. And we know he he does so because he is a sojourner in the land. That is one thing that Scripture does make clear. Abraham has no permanent home. He moves throughout all the land. This is not his home. He is a stranger here, an outsider, an alien to this place. And so it's not... Uh, uh, wrong to see him move from Mamre to this place called Kadesh. And sure, in between those two, named Gerag, a place that's on the very edge of the promised land. He is still living here within the bounds of the land that God promised him. He is still within that territory. But very quickly, a disturbing scene uh, unfolds. And you'll notice how rapidly the scene unfolds, how quickly the words move. You know, the text tells us that Abraham and Sarah repeat that same old line from chapter 12 about Sarah being Abraham's sister. And as soon as these words are spoken, the king of this land, he sends for Sarah and he takes her for his own. It's the same language. You can't help but hear the echoes back to chapter 12. 12 when Pharaoh did the same thing kidnapping Sarah to be his bride that is what's going on here King Abimelech hears of Sarah and he knows that here is a prize worth possessing here is a woman who is 90 years old who has entered his land with a vast amount of wealth surely some of this large group must belong to her and he has and she has no children She has no one to pass her inheritance on to, no heir. And so King Abimelech sees an opportunity to make his own, uh, align his own coffers with coin. And he sees that it is pleasing to the eye and he takes what he desires. And immediately, God enters the scene. And now suddenly, we start to get to the heart of the text. I'm not just saying that. Uh, You have to remember, as you read Genesis God is the main character of this book. You know, we tend to lose sight of that reality because it's much easier to see man as the central figure, as man being the one who takes center stage. Whether it's Adam or Noah or Abraham, truly all these men are important characters in Genesis, but the whole drive of the book of Genesis is about God and who God is, that he is a God who keeps his promise. That this covenant-keeping God, this book centers on him and what he is doing, a God who created man in his own image, a man who rebelled against God in sin. And the rest of Genesis, after chapter 3, is answering the question, what is God going to do to restore this broken relationship? How is he going to heal this chasm that has been rendered between God and man? And so when God enters the scene Here we start to see what is at the heart of everything. It's not about Abraham and his deceit, though surely he is wrong here, and we'll we'll come back to that later. But God comes down, and he speaks, and it's not a good thing here. God comes down, and he comes in judgment against King Abimelech. Abimelech is in the dock here, if you will. He's the one in the hot seat in this scene. 
And God speaks, and the very first words out of his mouth are, Behold, you are a dead man. It's like, oh God, uh, you know, give it to me straight. Don't hold anything back. No, really. I mean, the words here literally are, Behold, you are dead. I've come in judgment against you. Judgment is swiftly coming down upon Abimelech. God is declaring to him, You are a dead man walking because of your sin against Abraham, because you stole another man's wife for your own, you have a problem, Abimelech, and something needs to change or you're dead, period. I mean, that's the end of the discussion. And Abimelech pleads his case before God. He says, Lord, I didn't know. I am guiltless, that's the word he uses. I am guiltless, I am innocent in my heart. I did this thing. I didn't know Abraham said it was his sister, Lord, I didn't do this thing on person. If I sinned, I sinned in ignorance, and my conscience is clear before you. Notice what he says next. Notice this. He says, but will you, O God, kill an innocent? He doesn't say man. He says people. Will you kill an innocent nation because of a sin done in ignorance? Abimelech understands that God's wrath is coming, and it's not just coming against him, not just against his own family, but a whole nation will experience this wrath of God. Abimelech rules over a whole people who will be judged because of his sin. God never works with just individuals in Scripture. Abimelech stands as a king over a nation, as a representative for a whole people, and God will judge this whole nation depending on Abimelech's response and his actions. And Abimelech puts the question before God, will you judge us all when my conscience is clear? Notice how God responds. He says, I know that you did this in innocence, And I myself kept you from sinning further against me. You did not take her. You did not touch her. I did not let you touch her. So take this woman back to her husband, and he will intercede for you, and you will live. But something has to change, Abimelech. The very last words out of his mouth, again, are you are a dead man. You and all who are with you and all who are under your rule, clearly, Something important is at stake here for God. Something must happen for Abimelech to avert the wrath of God. He needs to restore this woman to her husband. And Abraham will have to intercede for Abimelech or mediate between God and him. But something must change. Otherwise, you're dead. You and all you represent. We have to step back and ask the question, why is this such a big deal? I mean, he didn't touch her. What is at stake here? Why is this so important that God threatens an entire nation with swift judgment? You have to realize God is declaring war against Abimelech and promising death if nothing changes, if he remains unrepentant. When his sin has been made known to him, when it is put before his faith, the sword of God's judgment will fall upon this nation. But why? Why is this so important? Well, people of God, it's because God's promise of restoring man is on the line here. 
I mean, the covenant God made with Adam and now Abraham is in danger. Everything that God has promised since the fall is on the line. Sarah is the one who God promised a seed would come through by the end of this very year. A seed that would ultimately lead to a Messiah, a deliverer, one who would crush the head of that serpent of old. And Abimelech here is choking out that promise By taking Sarah for his wife, there is still a war going on. It has never ended between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it is coming front and center in this text, so much so that God is willing to go to war against an entire nation in order to restore his promise and make sure that his words are true and happen. God has a promise to keep and nothing will stand in his way and prevent him from keeping him keeping it but before we move on we need to see two more things notice god still is giving abimelech a chance out of this judgment he delays his wrath he holds it off he knows abimelech did this the text says in the guiltlessness of his heart and god is fully aware that that is the case God sees Abimelech for who he really is. He is a struggling sinner, one who isn't even fully aware of what he has done, one who now knowing it, now that it has come forefront in his eye, he wants to avert the wrath of God, but there is still this problem between God and Abimelech. Something must still change or he will die. Restoration and intercession need to take place. And notice, both restoration and intercession need to take place with Abraham, this man who is a prophet and will intercede for Abimelech. The text presents us to Abraham, who in this particular portrait, as God speaks of him, is painted in a glowing light, a man who is God's prophet, a man who will intercede for Abimelech in order to save him and his people from certain destruction. And so Abimelech wakes early in the next morning. Notice, you know, this is an, there's an immediacy attached to this. Immediately in the morning, he wakes and he declares to his servants and to his officials what has happened. And a great fear of the Lord begins to take hold of them all. And very quickly, we move into Abimelech's courtroom. Abimelech's courtroom. As you move... To verse 9, Abimelech calls Abraham into his presence. And immediately, Abimelech asks Abraham, what is this thing that you have done? It may seem like a simple question to Abraham, but again, you have to realize the context. Here is a king calling a stranger, a sojourner, to account for his actions. This is a classic courtroom scene in the ancient world to enter into the king's throne room to answer for something that you have done this is a courtroom scene or into his presence at all if you walk into the presence of the king you are in the presence of his court and therefore his courtroom and his judgments and decisions are final and so when Abimelech calls Abraham into his presence Abe is now on trial he is the one who is in the hot seat And Abimelech lays out his case before him saying, you have done things to me that ought not to be done. How have I sinned against you that you brought this on me and my kingdom, this great sin? 
Notice the case set before Abraham. Here's the accusations. You've done something to me that shouldn't be done. And you have not, you have caused me and my kingdom to be found in a great sin. What did you see that made you do this thing? And Abraham tells him, he says, I saw no fear of God in this place. Surely, there is no concern for the wrath of God in this place. And so Abraham fears for his life here and the confession uh, and confesses it to Abimelech. And he's like, look, I looked around and I didn't see any clear markers here that you as a king over this unrighteous nation had any concern whatsoever for the God who has made you and for the morality that he expects out of you as image bearers. I saw myself in the land of God haters who did not fear the maker of heaven and earth and his wrath against those who break his law. I saw myself in the land of the seed of the serpent. And so I told you the truth you needed to know and no more in order to preserve my life. Sarah is, in fact, my sister. Notice, though, the text doesn't center on a backsliding saint, though indeed, you know, his lie is not necessarily good here. As soon as Abimelech hears Abraham's words, notice how the scene moves forward. He immediately passes judgment about the whole affair between him and Abraham. As soon as he hears these words from Abraham, he gives him sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. And then he says, behold, my land is before you. Take whatever part seems best to you. Take the part that pleases you best, even the very finest of my land. Abimelech here, he pours favor upon favor upon Abraham and gift after gift in an inordinate amount. I mean, this is a huge amount of things that he is giving, especially if Abraham is in the wrong here in this particular court case. I mean, usually in a court case, the person doing the wrong has to pay for his crime, not the one who has been wronged. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, Abimelech hears Abraham's response, no matter how flimsy it seems to us. And Abimelech is satisfied and has given him this great wealth. And he returns Sarah to Abraham saying, Behold, I have given your brother. Notice the language there. It's interesting that he uses that word instead of husband. It's as though Abimelech is saying, I have heard what you have said and I completely accept your explanation. He says, I have given your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. This is huge. This is uh, years of labor for an ordinary man. But may this silver act as a covering to the eyes to all who are with you. And the text tells us to all she was vindicated. The language again, vindicated. It's a very important word here. It's a word that talks about something being argued out in a legal dispute. And that person to be found right, to be found correct. And so Sarah is found to be in the right. She is vindicated in this particular situation as she is connected to Abraham. So the question then is, what is all this about? What is going on here? I mean, it's one thing to see Abimelech do all these good things for Abraham and Sarah, but why is he doing it? 
I mean, are these just random acts of kindness? Like, you know what, Abraham, now that you're here, I see you're not really all that bad. You know, you're kind of a good guy. Maybe I'll let you have the best of the land here. And here, take all this extra stuff. Surely not. Notice, as you come to verses 14 through 18, judgment is being turned away here. You know, Abimelech lays gift upon gift upon gift on Abraham. And some think this is simply the kindness of a pagan king who fears God. But scripture tells us what is going on here. Something we don't usually see, but some commentators have picked up on it. In Leviticus 6, God speaks to this exact situation. And he says this, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery... If he oppresses his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it falsely, in any of these things that people do and sin by, if he has sinned and he realizes his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery, exactly what Abimelech is doing, he shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it, give it add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day that he realizes his guilt immediately. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for any of the things by which he became guilty. Beloved, that is what Abimelech is doing here. It's not a gesture of grandeur. Abimelech has stolen from Abraham, albeit he didn't realize it at the time. But that is the language of the text. He saw and he took, not knowing who Sarah belonged to, or if he did, he didn't ask, he just took. But now on the day he realizes his sin, when he is confronted with who he is as a sinner, just as Leviticus 6 speaks about, he then returns what has been stolen. He returns Sarah to Abraham and he gives him gifts of money and land usage and servants on top of it because who can put a price on a spouse's worth? And he does all this in order to deal with his guilt. It is a guilt offering. He gives sheep and oxen to Abraham, this patriarch. God calls a prophet in order that Abraham might make intercession for him. Abraham is doing the same thing here that Moses does for Miriam when she sins against God and against Moses in Numbers 12. Or Job, whenever he intercedes on behalf of his friends whom they have wronged before God, or wronging both God and Job. It is the same kind of intercession here. What's interesting about God calling Abraham a prophet and interceding for him is that in this time, in the time of the patriarchs, Prophets also acted as priests. To be called a prophet was indeed to function as a priest. Peter calls Noah a prophet, and yet we see Noah offering sacrifices back in Genesis 6 or 9, as a priest would do so. That is the function of a priest. They were blended offices in this time frame. And so Abraham, this prophet as a priest, he makes atonement for the king before the Lord and probably his own as well. Even as Hebrews 5 talks about that a priest is to offer sacrifices for his own sin. And God forgives him 
for the sins that have made him guilty. Abraham intercedes for King Abimelech and guilt no longer hangs over Abimelech or his household. Suddenly, the text tells us they are fruitful and they multiply and he is blessed by the very God that they had offended. It makes you question, what is at the heart of this text? I mean, what is it all about? Is this really a repeat of Genesis 12? Is this a story of a backsliding sinner? Or is it about struggling sinners who stand guilty before a holy God and need atonement to be made? Abimelech stands here as a representative for a whole unrighteous people who have sinned against God, even if it's been done in ignorance, even if they are fully unaware of their sin. And God says, something needs to change or you and your people are all dead. But he gives them a way out. He says, you need a mediator. Go to Abraham, go to this prophet and a priest, and he will make intersection for you. Go to Abraham, admit the guilt of your sin, and he will mediate between me and you. And ultimately, we see a reversal take place in the text, don't we? In this place where Abraham said, I saw no fear of God in this place. Now we see a, God, a, a king with a true fear of the Lord. This whole fear is on the whole of the land. They see their guilt. They see their need for atonement. And once a mediator intercedes for him, God blesses them. Complete reversal from what he started out as. No longer is this entire nation under judgment, but they are abundantly blessed. How can these things be? People of God, it's because God is a God who keeps his promises. He protects his covenant that he promised to Abraham and now and to Adam and now to Sarah and that he would have a holy seed and that this holy seed would come and do battle with the seed of the serpent in order to deliver a multitude of sinners. And surely that war that began early in the history of man still is raging here. Satan is still seeking to snuff out the line that would lead to Christ, the promised Redeemer, but God will keep his promise of sending forth a son to deliver men from the guilt of their sins and make atonement for them. People of God, that's what God has promised he would do, and he did do. He kept that promise. He protected this holy seed all throughout the Old Testament. He kept it for you. He kept his promise for you. Christ came to deliver the guilty, those who deserve punishment, to bring an ultimate blessing to them, bringing an ultimately, us ultimately into the presence of God himself. God had a promise to keep, and nothing will stand in his way to prevent him from keeping it. Not even death itself will stop the Father and Son and Holy Spirit from delivering sinners. As Psalm 105 says, God will punish the kings who threaten the covenant. Those he covenants with, those who threaten the patriarchs. God has a promise to keep. And now we look back in history and we see he kept it. He fulfilled his promise. He sent his only begotten son for a, and who paid a price 
In order to save many, this collective group of sinful people, he bought them for a price and pitied them when they were enemies, and he paid the guilt offering that was required for our sins. He sat in the dock. He sat in the hot seat, in the judgment seat. He took the penalty we deserved. Why would he do that? Beloved, he does it because he knows we are struggling sinners in need of a mediator, in need of a savior. We cannot fix the problem ourselves. We are helpless to do so. And so he sends a mediator, one who is both prophet and priest, Christ Jesus, and he does it because he promised that he would do so. And God always keeps his promises, no matter what the cost is to himself. People of God, that is the God that you can trust. That is your God. One who sees us as sinners. This doesn't excuse us to live in sin but it does give us confidence that we have one who cleanses us of all unrighteousness when we do. One who will continue to draw us into the presence of God himself by the blood of Christ Jesus that takes away our sin. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we come into your throne room And we come as those who have been declared by Christ Jesus that we are cleansed of all our sins if we have faith in him as the beloved son. Lord, Father, we come before you and we know that we are sinners who regularly struggle. We even sin against you in ignorance. And we tell half-truths. We do things that we know that we ought not to do. Father, we ask that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Look upon your righteous Son, who is our mediator, who interceded for our behalf. And we pray, Lord, that you would turn our eyes to him as well, that we might seek to live godly and righteous and sober lives before you because of what he has done, because he has brought us into your presence. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.